Grand Touring Motorsports started as a social group of car enthusiasts, but we've expanded into all sorts of motorsports disciplines, and we want to share our stories with you. Years of racing, wrenching, and motorsports experience brings together a top-notch collection of knowledge and information through our podcast, Break Fix. Hey everybody, Crew Chief Eric here. And as a follow-on to the interview we did with Mike Crutch Crutchfield, we wanted to take a minute to talk about one of his other experiences. And as you know from the episode that you heard, that was all about, did you know that I lived in Germany? But did you also know that Mike did an extended tour over in the South Pacific, specifically in New Zealand and Australia. And he had some very interesting experiences there on the track, off the track. And he wanted to take a minute to share his stories with us as a follow-up to his original interview. So Mike, take it away. It was now about a year and a half ago. I was sent over there for about three months, which then became five months. (laughs) But I was down in New Zealand and really opened my eyes to some things. Sheep racing. Hmm? Uh, one, the flight's too damn far. Never go there. Because <laughs> I had to fly from Baltimore to San Francisco to Auckland and then hop a small flight down to uh, Wellington, New Zealand. So yeah, it's too far. Don't go there. Two, there's seven sheep per person in New Zealand. Did you paint a number three on the side of yours? Or what's your NASCAR number? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, gr- I grew up a Dale Senior fan, but you know. But it's just, it's a very different culture down there that, as with Europe, it's not as dominant of a car culture as the U.S. Everywhere you want to go in the U.S., you need a car. Everything's very spread out, very suburban, and there's not a wealth of mass transit in the U.S. But in New Zealand, especially because I was actually in a fairly good-sized city, Wellington, there was a car culture there. I'd never had a car the entire time I was in New Zealand. And the only time I had a car was when we went to Australia. So it was a very different culture. But they had a car show while I was there, and it was devoted to American cars. An amazing car show that there are plenty of photos out there. We'll post a link in the, in the notes so that people can go see some of the photos you took. New Zealand, being a former British colony, is one of the countries that drives on the wrong side of the road, as, as many of us like to say. So you've got your right-hand drive vehicles driving on the other side of the road, and You know, they have some classic cars there that are from quote unquote GM or Ford. Ford actually being a brand that was available in Australia, New Zealand. And for GM, you're largely represented by Holden, which was an Australian brand. So they had a lot of those classic cars, but they also had things that I did not expect to see. There was an entire section of the car show devoted to Mustangs. And for those who don't know, the first Mustang to be offered in right-hand drive was the current generation Mustang. Every Mustang prior to that was only offered left-hand drive, which means they have a ton of Mustangs down there that have the steering wheel on the wrong side of the car for them. So just a whole section of the show devoted to everything from your 50s and 60s Mustangs up to the previous generation, Boss 302s and everything from the previous generation that were left-hand drive. And there's always that one guy with the Mustang 2 Cobra, right? There's always one in the group. <laughs> I don't remember seeing any Mustang 2s. That's a good thing. But, but then I, also, I saw very strange. I saw lowered Impala convertibles. Like I saw things straight out of American car culture 
in New Zealand. It was a very surreal concept. You had hot rods. You had uh, smoking the bandit Trans Am. You had Corvettes from C1 up through C6 all showing up to this car show. Do you think they're there in part because of people that brought them over, let's say on military transport or something like that, and they were left behind and didn't want to take them back home because it was too difficult to do that? Or do you think they were actually sold there as a production vehicle? A lot of them were brought there by car collectors who live in New Zealand. New Zealand, you know, unlike even to an extent Australia, you know, has some U.S. people who have been stationed there. But you know, New Zealand's a very small country. There's not a whole lot going on there. Outside of the U.S. Embassy or wings of uh, U.S. companies that are over there, there's not a whole lot over there for American culture. So it's not the European thing where Americans take over their you know, old muscle car and someone in Germany offers them a ton of money for it. These were car collectors who wanted them brought into the country. There were even a couple of news articles I saw while I was down there about, hey, this guy just spent all this money to import this special C3 Corvette into New Zealand so to add to his car collection. So what's motorsport like in New Zealand? I mean, is it like here where there's... I mean, obviously, it's a small island nation. There, there can't be a million tracks. I mean, granted, America is very blessed to have tracks in every state almost. But what's it like over there? That is interesting because they are huge into dirt track racing with sedan cars. You know, similar to our NASCAR wheel and modified style cars or, or other lower tier NASCAR series where it's a sedan looking stock car racing on a dirt track. That is huge over there as is V8 supercar racing, because they actually have a race there every year up in Auckland, which is partially a road course that happens with the V8 supercars, as well as Circuit Bruce McLaren, which is about halfway up the country. I managed to see while we were flying over it at one point, I got some photos of it flying over it. It's just positioned about mid-island as you're going north. But I looked into it because, you know, I'm a car guy and you know, want to drive as many racetracks as I can. I looked into it while I was over there, but to drive on a racetrack in New Zealand is a lot more involved in the U.S. So you have the U.S., which is you have to wear a helmet, usually you have to wear long pants, usually a long sleeve shirt. You have Germany, which is you don't even need to pass the broomstick test. You don't need a helmet and you never have an instructor. And then you have New Zealand, which is even if you're just going there for a track day in your own car, you must be wearing com complete fireproof underwear, the complete wow. fire protection suite. That made from sheep? <laughs> yes, you just skin the sheep right there at the track and put it on. Sounds um, itchy. <laughs> <laughs> and that has to go with the fact that they're big on, I, I want to say safety. There, there's, I can't remember the exact phrase they use, but they're more focused on keeping people safe than to prevent possible medical issues than some other countries where it's either do as you want or you know, America where it's like, oh, well, you screwed up, we'll sue someone. I mean, it looks like a beautiful facility. There was no easy way for me to get there, uh, unfortunately. And so the only way I saw it was from the air. It was a very interesting, you know, just reading about how the, the regulations work for their equivalent to HPDE is. There's dirt tracks several places across the country. Their car culture is also interesting because being a right-hand drive country, there's a lot of models that made it there out of Japan that we would never have seen. Uh, there are GTRs everywhere because they were sold new there. So you have your R33s, your R34 GTRs. 
you have a lot of Toyotas because they were actually for a long time built in New Zealand, as were some Fords were actually built in New Zealand for their market. And obviously Holden, who had the big factory over in uh, Australia at the time. Do they have the same obsession that the Aussies do with Utes? To a lesser degree, the Kiwis actually have, you actually see a lot of Toyota Helixes and a lot of pickup truck bodies with uh, utility beds on the back. Less of the Ute culture, but there's still a good quantity of them because they were so readily available coming out of Australia. And the terrain of New Zealand is very different than that of Australia too. So it would lend itself to different types of cars. New Zealand being A, very mountainous and B, an island. It's kind of weird because there's sections of the country where there's almost not paved roads. It's you, you end up on gravel roads. The trip from Wellington to Auckland by air is less than an hour. It's like 30 minutes of airtime. So if you think about that in the U.S., you're talking eh, just, you know, a, a reasonable drive because it's not, you know, you're talking maybe a couple hours drive. Basically Baltimore to D.C. Gotcha. <laughs> Closer to like Phoenix to Tucson. You know, you, you go up, you're coming back down right away. To drive from Wellington to Auckland is an eight-hour drive because, one, there's no direct route because of the mountainous terrain, and then a lot of the roads are at uh, lower speeds because they aren't heavily paved roads. So again, Maryland to Virginia. I got you. I, I, I can correlate there. Same time, but you know, paved roads versus you know, traffic. And then the other big interesting thing is you know, New Zealand is primarily made up of two large uh, land masses that are separated by actual open ocean. And they have ferry service that runs between the two. And so you'll see a lot of people who will rent juicy vans Juicy is the brand. It is hilarious. Like on the sweatpants? Are we talking about that juicy or is it something? Oh, it gets better. So the Vans is juicy on the side and there's like pictures of 1950s and 60s pinup girls on the side. I think I've got the Um, next livery livery for my car. (laughs) And they are small camper vans that people take tramping. Whoa, wait a minute. Wait, oh God. (laughs) Are we going to unpack this? Because I have a lot of questions. (laughs) Tramping is camping. Camping, glamping. Tramping. Tramping. Uh, tramping. So, so if you want to go tramping in your juicy van with the pinup girl, you can in New Zealand. Uh, I think I've seen a lot of that in Southeast DC. I think there's a <laughs> bunch of movies that start like this. Doesn't Porky start like this? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, if you really, if you really want to see what uh, the psyche of New Zealand is, there's a, uh, there's a movie that you should watch called Black Sheep which is not the Chris Farley movie, Black Sheep, but it is a New Zealand movie about basically (laughs) zombie werewolfish sheep attacking people. It's awesome. (laughs) Followed by the sequel, Black Sheep 2, Warm and Affection Animals. But what I really want to know, Mike, is A, did you find aliens? And B, did you find Bruce? And Bruce, if you're, (laughs) we miss you. Are you in New Zealand? Bruce, where are you? (laughs) uh no no aliens although studio that peter jackson uh has weta studios is down there and you actually can take tours so i got to see a lot of stuff that was used for alien movies like district nine and they also have a fully functional warthog a la halo that they built for microsoft that is in their studios that can not only drive forward and backwards can also crab walk sideways 
Nice. I also heard, and this is, I get this information by Flight of the Concords. If anybody remembers that show, there was a poster in Murray's office on the back that said, visit New Zealand. It's just like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> there are many spots where you can just happen to walk through where they filmed Lord of the Rings scenes. How many hobbits did you meet? I did not meet any hobbits. I did not make it up to Hobbiton. Is it a real place? Where they built Hobbiton is in the north near Auckland. Well, it's south of, south of Auckland a bit, but it's on the north end of the North Island. After the movies were originally filmed, it actually fell into disrepair until they realized, hey, we can actually make this a torch attraction. So you can actually visit the huts that were Hobbiton up in the north end of New Zealand. I mean, granted, as a teenager, I realized I really wanted to go to New Zealand because Xena, Warrior Princess, was filmed there. Yeah, unfortunately, you probably weren't going to have much luck with Xena. Damn. I don't think she's still there. <laughs> that ship has sailed, yes. <laughs> that ship sailed when the air show was still in the air. Come on. All right, uh, so back to New Zealand. <laughs> Let's get out of my boyish fantasies here. But yeah, New Zealand is it's strange because you have, you have the cities, but then in between those cities, it's just wooded mountains. And sheep. Uh, and sheep. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's absolutely stunning. And when we took the ferry down to the South Island... One, we were fortunate it was a, a calm day because those seas can be a little rough. Oh, so it's, uh, they got rowdy over there all of a sudden. <laughs> no, no, uh, although they do, do like the, to drink. Do the sheep go on strike? That's what I want to know. Can you use the sheep as a flotation device? I haven't tried. Although uh, one, one day on the ferry <laughs> going across. I can hear the stewardess now, or excuse me, flight attendant now. Uh, the sheep underneath your seat is used as a flotation device in case of emergency. You do oh. not need to fill it with air. <laughs> <laughs> He's already inflated. <laughs> all right. Sorry. All right. There's so many, now, guys, so many sheep I'm, jokes. It, it's getting old, but keep going. But, but now Brad talking about filling it with air. All I can think of is that scene from airplane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the valve, Brad? Where's the valve? <laughs> That's for another episode. <laughs> So in addition to the, the car, car culture of New Zealand, another thing that has a commonality with the U.S. are a couple things. One, they really love burgers. They're huge into hamburgers down there, but very fancy hamburgers. They, they have restaurants that specialize in them that make them very, very good, but they almost always have an egg, a fried egg on top of them. I believe uh, we call that a Union Jack here in a lot of places. And they're also huge into, there's a lot of breweries down there. I went to, I don't even know how many local establishments that had either their own brew or from a brewery local to that part of New Zealand and would frequently buy local various beers in the grocery store and where I was working at the end of the day on Friday. Instead of going to the bar that was in the building, we would bring in our own beer, sit around doing trivia games at our desks on a Friday afternoon. It was wonderful. Uh, (laughs) Hey, we we were drinking beer, so it was all good. Yeah, it's true. I will add that I had the unfortunate experience of getting to go through an earthquake while I was there. Ooh. That was two weeks after we had an earthquake drill. So, you know, at least I was prepared. But I didn't dive under the desk until I saw the locals. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll get under the desk now. That was quite the experience. And then uh, right around Christmas time, Chrissy came down to visit. And we said, well, you're coming down to visit. We're going to make sure we hit Australia because it's too far of a flight. We'll probably never come back down here. We have to flight over to Sydney. Rented a car, and because it was around Christmas time, it was hard to rent a car, period. And it was stupidly expensive. But I wanted to get something that was at least somewhat enjoyable. So I ended up with a, a Volkswagen Golf TSI. 
and was not prepared for how exhausting it would be. And by that, think about your first time driving on track and you're going through the day and you're spending all that time thinking while you're on track. So at the end of the day, you're mentally exhausted. Now imagine driving on the wrong side of the car, on the wrong side of the road for three hours when we drove out to Bathurst. And so you're constantly having to think about one, you know, am I positioned right on the road itself? But two, is my car in the right spot in the lane I'm in? Because your entire frame of reference is flipped. You're used to my right side is, you know, usually this far away from the line to my right. Now you're right on that line. And my left side is usually this far away from the line. Now, now it's way far out. So you spend all this time thinking about, am I in the right spot in the lane and, and all that stuff. So by the time we got out to Bathurst, I was just exhausted. It is a bucket list item for me to drive, as we say, on the wrong side of the road, on the wrong side of the car with the manual transmission and everything. Just you got to have the trifecta. But I always visualize it. And I want to put this in reference because many, many of our listeners may not be of an age to have seen this movie. So I recommend watching it. But if you remember Kevin Klein in A Fish Called Wanda, when he's over there driving around in his big Chevy, whatever the heck it was in England, you know, he's going down the road and he's driving like he's in America because the steering wheel is on the left side of the car and everybody that's coming at him, he screams, he's like, assholes right so i'm kind of thinking like that's gonna be me unfortunately but you know i still want to do it so i mean your experience i mean that's that's real life there and it does sound like a very difficult transition i also hear it's very difficult when you're walking around town which i know you did a lot of you know going to and from work is to always look we're used to looking to the left you have to look to the right we look to the left first there you look to the right first that is i mean it's such a problem that in england they actually point on the ground, which way to look in London, for example. I didn't, I never saw that in New Zealand. It takes some thought. And because there's so much thought involved, you're actually less inclined to jaywalk. Because <laughs> you're at least subconsciously aware of the fact that I might look the wrong way and walk out into traffic. So let's talk more about Australia. What was Bathurst like? What is Bathurst, first of all? So, so Bathurst is a, I don't even really want to call it a city. It looks like a Midwestern US town, really. It is just this town out in the middle of nowhere, several hours west of Sydney, which is actually on the opposite side of a mountain range from Sydney at that point. It sounds like Fort Worth compared to Dallas. I, I don't even know how to describe it. It was It's the middle of nowhere. It's flat. The mountains are in the distance. And then other than Mount Panorama, which is right there. Because of all the Utes. Two um, Utes. <laughs> more than two Utes. It almost looks like small town America in the 80s. It was very tra- strange to me. But just outside of the town proper... There's this wonderful scenic road that goes up and down Mount Panorama. And it's actually, it's a touring road most of the year, which is, you know, it's just a bi-directional 35 kilometer an hour road or something like that, that goes up and down the side of this mountain. But a few times a year, it turns into what is referred to as the Mount Panorama Circuit, which is this amazing racetrack that has very close walls, is very narrow. You know, Australians and Kiwis like to drive big V8 powered cars around. So we went out there and just outside the track, there's a automotive racing museum. So we obviously stopped by there. That is full of stories about Holden, classic Holdens, classic cars that have raced at the Bathurst circuit, motorcycles that have raced at Bathurst, including some sidecar motorcycles. Gives you the whole history of how the circuit came to be. Someone decided he wanted to make a touring road up and down the mountain. And then as time progressed, they said, 
hey, let's do a race here. So this wonderful scenic two-lane loop of a road that has a vineyard in the middle of it and there's houses along it and has some permanent safety walls for the racetrack and has permanent racing curbing on it is open as a regular road most of the year. Yeah, Unfortunately, it's a lower speed limit, but it is... Uh, still an amazing experience to drive that and experience that elevation change and maybe put a couple tires up on the uh, curbing. <laughs> so is it a closed loop around, let's say the mountain and the vineyard or are there offshoot roads where people could gain access to it? Or is there only really one way in and one way out? So it is literally just roads that they have to wall off the intersections when uh, the race happens. Much like Le Mans in that respect. Yes. So at the top of the mountain where, for those familiar with the circuit, you know, there's the front stretch that continues at either end of the road and goes out beyond. And there's houses and farmland and and stuff like that in both directions. As you're going up the, you know, the second stretch after turn one, there's some houses and the vineyard off to the left, but that's mostly just property until right as you're getting to the very top where you make that sharp, very tight left. Memory serves, there's one road that shoots off and goes somewhere up there. And then as you come across the top, there's a couple access roads that leave it, but really what is up there is a bunch of campground because it's kind of like a parkland up there at the top. The main access roads, you know, in and out is just at either end of the front stretch down at the bottom because everything else is pretty much self-contained in the circuit itself. So as you drove it in both directions because it is a public road. Yeah. Using your experience, you know, we talk about sometimes, wouldn't it be fun to run the track backwards? And obviously I've seen the videos. So running Bathurst or Panorama in the counterclockwise direction, which it's run in, is the the safer way, in your opinion, to run that circuit? It flows more naturally. I mean, obviously we couldn't experience it fully, but the speed you would carry into what is like an uphill sharp corner when you're driving it in the normal direction at the end of that second stretch, driving that in the other direction would feel very uncomfortable. Much like, for instance, some of the turns at Shenandoah would feel extremely uncomfortable driving the other direction. The tight section that as you're going down the hill, where it keeps switching back, felt about the same both directions as far as, as comfort and safety, but it's certainly a hell of a lot more fun going down that. You know, it's tight, it's technical. To add to the, the complexity of driving on the wrong side of the road and the fact that Bathurst itself is so narrow and we're driving it with two-way traffic. There were also pedestrians walking along the side of the track where there's no sidewalk or shoulder, and there's blind corners. So (laughs) I'm trying to, one, take all this in driving the circuit while not hitting oncoming traffic, not hitting the wall, not hitting a pedestrian, and remembering where my car needs to be. So, And you were not hitting apexes. Oh, no. I I, I did use some curbing down near the... uh, you know, the last current turns uh, of the track, the, the S is kind of at the bottom of the hill. When you can really see, yeah. When you have sight lines and, and there's just that, that pristine curbing there. on, the, on so, the so, so two questions. One being, do you think that like, let's say simulators or even, even games like let's say Forza or, or Gran Turismo or something like that, do you think they do the track justice in terms of scale and the way they present it? Or is it different in real life? Because I've come to find it's, some tracks are very different in real life. I would say, for instance, Forza does a better job of representing Bathurst than any game has ever done representing the Nürburgring. You don't appreciate how close everything is until you're actually on Bathurst. 
yes, in fours, it feels like it's impossible to pass someone, but you're like, ah, I kind of could pass someone. Then you drive it for real and you're like, holy shit, there's a car coming the other way. I'm going to hit head on. So that's when you really appreciate how, how tight that is and, and really have respect for the V8 supercar drivers that are just plowing through there at high speed, doing some unbelievable passes. So that leads me into my second question. Do you think you would enjoy it if you were in a, in a proper race car or even in a, on a DE at Bathurst, would that, would that be enjoyable? Or do you think it's just, it's too much? And let's just say, let's take away the wrong side of the road because that no, that doesn't apply when you're on a race track anymore. And let's put you in a left-hand drive car again. Do you think you could enjoy Bathurst? Yes. Hands down. If I didn't have to worry about someone coming around those blind corners, the other direction or someone standing on the shoulder, I would have been going much faster in that rental car and having a hell of a lot more fun. Just driving it was enjoyable just because it's, you know, it's, it's that once a lifetime experience, but driving that at speed, you know, that would rank right up there with Nürburgring and some of the other tracks uh, I've been on. It's just, it's iconic, it's beautiful, and it's very technical. Could you compare it to anything here in the States? Maybe people could relate to it or certain sections of it? Or is Bathurst really stand on its own as a very unique circuit? Parts of coming up the, uh, the second stretch you know, after turn one, it's, you know, it's tighter because there's no runoff, but the flow at times can feel a little similar to the uphill S's at VIR. You have good flow and it's going uphill. So you have the gravity assist for traction, but you also have a wall that where, you know, BIR would have curbing. The the closeness of the walls. Palmer? In term, I don't know. Palmer, Palmer had close walls and also close rock faces. But the only thing I've had that felt that close is sections of Dominion. Because Dominion, it literally, if pavement ends, there's a wall. And with Bathurst, pavement ends, there's a wall. And it's not, you know, one of those big NASCAR tracks, which is a big wide track. It's very narrow and the wall's right there. So that closeness feeling is like, you know, turn one, turn two of, of, of Dominion, two inches off and you're in concrete. Elevation changes can be, can be, you know, similar to Palmer. It's just, I don't know, it's, it's hard to describe. But then coming down the back stretch or the down, the long downhill stretch, it is so much more open. It's, it's surreal compared to going up the, up the hill. You know, when you first get onto it coming down through the, the tight bits, it's a little close, but then you're on that long backstretch and there's now grass on either side before you get to the walls. And then you're coming to those S kink with the, the sand traps near it. That feels like it's humongous. That feels country club-esque. You know, going up the hill, it's just, it's claustrophobic. And <laughs> even across the top of the mountain. Getting away from Bathurst. So you spent some time there in Australia and the Sydney area and, and all that, did you see anything that really stood out at you from a car culture perspective in Australia that was different, let's say, than New Zealand? Like I said, utes are bigger in Australia than they were in New Zealand. So I got to see a lot more, especially of the uh, the HSV Holdens, which would, for Chevy fans, would be similar to what SS is over here. It's the, the Pontiacs uh, before they went away. Well, I mean, you have the G8 and the GTO were based off of the Commodore and... The Monaro. Yeah, Monaro. The Chevy SS was the one that was really closest to an HSV vehicle. And HSV is even beyond what Chevy normally does with SS. It's it's closer to uh, an M or one of those other in-house full-on tuner organizations. They don't just, you know, slap an SS badge on and up the cubic inches a little bit. They actually 
work over the whole vehicle. They also are huge into their bright colors. So, and and Europe, and Europe does a lot of this too, where you know you can order a much larger palette of vehicles from from manufacturers in Europe than you can in the U.S. But that's also because in the U.S. is a lot easier to back out of buying a vehicle. They don't want to have to try and sell that lime green Volkswagen Golf to some other person because you decided after waiting for it for six months, you didn't want it. So down in Australia, you'll, you'll have that, that bright neon green Holden HSV Ute with the V8 under the hood and a stick shift. And it's just the most amazing thing you, you've, you've seen in a while. So that's really interesting. While I was down there is when all of the Holden and Ford factory closing stuff was really taking shape. GM just flat out killed Holden as a brand. They started by closing the factory. And so then they were starting to import mostly Buicks built in China. Holden Commodore became almost, it was like a Buick Regal liftback. The Buick Regal sedan, but with a hatchback opening rear. Or not a hatchback, but a, um, a liftgate, like, like a 90s Camaro. Mm, the, big, gotcha. you know, the big, huge glass section in the back of the road. They were actually sending over right-hand drive GMC Acadias as Holdens. Ironically enough, I came back to the States and then saw a truckload of them headed to a port. You know, I saw all these GMCs with Holden badges on the front. Shortly thereafter, they just killed the Holden brand entirely, or just recently, they killed the Holden brand entirely. And Ford did the same where they they canceled their factory and then decided they were going to pull out of the market because the number of right-hand drive markets compared to their global market is just not significant enough. What's ended up happening is they basically abandoned Australia and New Zealand to let Toyota and Nissan and so forth just move in and take over because it's, it's not economical. Because for the longest time, GM had the Australia, New Zealand, and the UK market were their, their real right-hand drive markets. But then they sold Vauxhall and Opel to Peugeot, and they pulled out of UK entirely, and then actually pulled out of Europe as a whole. So then they only had Australia and New Zealand. There just wasn't enough market share for, to, for them to continue to justify. It would have been nice had they just you know, sold off the Holden brand and let it try and survive on its own. But I still don't think there's enough volume there. So as, as we wrap up this conversation, I mean, it sounds like you had a really great time. You got to see some really interesting things. I only knew a fraction about New Zealand before, you know, we talked about this and obviously this discussion, I mean, being a rally fan, I tune in every year and watch rally New Zealand, you know, it's on the schedule it's mid year. Although unfortunately this year, a lot of rallies got canceled, you know, starting from Argentina forward. But if anybody's interested in getting some of the racing experience of New Zealand, you know, tuning in on Red Bull TV and watching their, you know, 4k recordings of the rallies and stuff are, are pretty cool. And, and rally New Zealand has been on the docket since the seventies. So it's not something new. It's not something they've introduced just yesterday. And I think in addition to that, a resource to kind of tie both of the countries together, you know, Australia and New Zealand, watching a, a personal favorite movie of mine, Love the Beast with Eric Bana. He talks a lot about driving at Bathurst, talks a lot about driving Rally Tasmania, which is, you know, kind of situated between the two in a way and spending some time in New Zealand, et cetera. And that's a fantastic film for any of the listeners out there who haven't seen it. It's available on, on multiple streaming services, or you can pick up a copy on Amazon or something like that, but it's definitely something to check out. So Mike, anything else you'd like to add? Well, if we have any uh, actual listeners in New Zealand, if you can find a way to get me more Thompson whiskey, I'm, I'm running low on my supply. <laughs> no, I mean, I had a great time while I was down there and 
everyone down there, both in New Zealand and uh, and Australia, are very welcoming. Everything was was simply beautiful and amazing down there. And if you have the opportunity, you know, have the tolerance to sit on a plane that long, I, I highly recommend getting down there. But make sure you have time to spend a couple weeks down there because that time change is brutal. We're actually in a different day most of the time. And there's so much to see. There's more I wish I would have seen while I was down there, but the time just wasn't there. I know one of the things you miss the most, and I'm going to make sure that it gets put in your stocking this year, is we're going to, we're going to make sure we get you some jars of Vegemite. Uh, you know, I know you're really lacking for that these days. Hang on. I'm trying to remember because I thought they were Marmite. Vegemite and Marmite are very similar. One is found in the UK and one is more frequently found in Australia and New Zealand. All I remember is the lyrics from whatever that song is from the 80s, The Land Down Under or whatever. They, they sing about Vegemite and that. So that's my immediate, you know, association. Okay. So whatever. If I'm wrong, sorry, New Zealand listeners. It all <laughs> just tastes like tar and salt to me. So it's all good. But on that note, we are going to end. But thank you, Mike, for, for joining us again and filling in this gap and really interesting story. And like I said, we'll post some follow-up pictures from Mike's trip. That way the listeners can go into ahead and take a look at it. It'll be on our website. Go to www.gtmotorsports.org. All right, Mike, thank you so much. Thank you. If you like what you heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out at www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Touring Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hey listeners, Crew Chief Eric here. Do you like what you've seen, heard, and read from GTM? Great, so do we, and we have a lot of fun doing it. But please remember, we're fueled by volunteers and remain a no-annual-fee organization. But we still need help to keep the momentum going so that we can continue to record, write, edit, and broadcast all of your favorite content. So be sure to visit www.patreon.com forward slash gtmotorsports or visit our website and click in the top right corner on the support and donate to learn how you can help. 